This week on Sci-Fi with Jesse Mercury, we'll be chatting with award-winning feminist scholar and sci-fi author Marlene S. Barr. Let's get to it. Sci-Fi. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury. I am very excited about this episode. I had a wonderful conversation with Marlene S. Barr that I cannot wait to share with you. First of all, I have to give a huge, huge thank you to Olga, my newest Patreon patron. She signed up at $3 a month, and I am so incredibly grateful. Olga's actually a friend from high school, and I'm so excited and blown away that she's supporting me and my content creation. Thank you so very much. Olga will be getting uh, access to the premium podcast and free downloads of all of my sci-fi synth-pop music, current and future. So thank you, thank you, Olga. I really appreciate it. If you'd like to become a patron and support my content creation, you can do so at patreon.com slash Sci-Fi. I have another big thank you. Uh, this one goes out to Easton, uh, known as Eastside Story 22 on iTunes, for this incredible five-star review on iTunes for the podcast. So let me read this to you. Are you a nerd? Do you find that when you see the commercial for a Blade Runner sequel, you get weak at the knees? Does the trailer for the new Solo movie give you sweaty palms? If you're like me, when you see these topics, you get excited. Maybe even a little too excited. 6 to 12 excited. This is your podcast. Everything from the topics to the guests, the music to the charismatic host. This is how you want to spend your time. Listen to Jesse's insight. I fancy myself a pretty smart guy, yet Jesse comes up with things I wouldn't notice in a million years. Open your mind. Come join the ranks. Listen to the podcast. Go time travel with Jesse Mercury. Uh, Easton, dude, thank you so much. I got a little uh, a little verklempt when I read that <laughs> review, so I really, really appreciate that. Um, so we're up to 13 five-star reviews on iTunes, and if you want to help support the show, leaving us a positive review on iTunes is one of the best ways. I really, really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. So I'm thrilled to bring you this conversation. I've never had a sci-fi scholar on the show before, let alone a feminist sci-fi scholar. You know I talk about feminism quite often on the show. It's something that I'm very passionate about. And this was just an honor and a thrill for me to be able to ha- not just have this discussion, but to be able to share it with all of you listeners. So I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm excited. We're just going to jump right into it. Here is my discussion with Marlene S. Barr. Marlene S. Barr, welcome to Sci-Fi with Jesse Mercury. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. Yeah, I'm thrilled to talk to you. So we're, we're here to talk about your new short story collection, which is entitled The Feminist Science Fiction Justice League Quashes the Orange Outrage Pussy Grabber colon Political Power Fantasy Fiction. I'm very excited. Well, actually, <laughs> actually the title changed. Oh, what's the when- new title? Well, the Feminist Science Fiction Justice League quashes the Orange Outrage Pussy Grabber. I really like that because it kind of coincided with my personality, and it sounds very unscholarly. <laughs> but the editor, even though he's a kick-ass editor, he said it was too long. So he said, he, had, he said that I had to have a short main title. So I changed the main title to When Trump Changed. Mm. Awesome. And the thing with the pussies in the Justice League, that comes as the subtitle. And when Trump changed means, in terms of science fiction, I changed him. I changed him into every science fiction trope I could pick out of my science fiction trope grab bag. I have alternative Hillary histories where she comes back and she becomes president. (laughs) I change him into Godzilla. I make him climb up the beanstalk and he finds pigs up there who look like him. I did everything. So I changed him and it also reverberates and alludes to my favorite feminist science fiction story when it tra- when it changed by the great Joanna Russ. Oh, uh, what's that about? I've never heard of that. When it changed is about a separatist feminist planet called Wileway and the women marry each other and they're having a wonderful time and the women if if you have to do something on Wileway, you have to be like the female fire department head and the female president <laughs> and the female everything and the men come 
and it changes. And the story, when it changed, resonated to me. And the general reader would understand when Trump, when Trump changed in the surface structure level that I talked about. Okay, he doesn't change, and science fiction can change him. But I think science fiction writers and science fiction scholars would hear in When Trump Changed, my allusion to Joanna Russ's When It Changed. Yeah, I love that. I love that you have a sort of nod to your own, uh, I I guess, fandom of something that you are excited about in the title of your own work. I think that's fantastic. Thank you, because I'm trying to take my hat off to the great feminist science fiction writer that I devoted my life to studying and who I emulate and who's a Bronx Jew and I'm a Queens Jew. <laughs> and I guess I, underst- I guess I understand Trump because I come from Forest Hills, Queens, which is a walk down Queens Boulevard from Jamaica Estates where he comes from. So I'm an out of borough kid just like him. And he went to school at the Q Forest School in Forest Hills. And there are business people in my family. And I understand all of his business nonsense. <laughs> Well, speaking of where you come from, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your background. I've never had the opportunity to to talk to a feminist science fiction scholar before, and I'd love to hear about you and where you come from and how you approach this work. And then I'd love to talk some more about the short story collection. Well, as a child, I was in love with Mighty Mouse, Hmm. and I watched Mighty Mouse every Saturday morning. Here I come to save the day. That means that Mighty Mouse is on the way. And I sort of hated cats because he beat them up and cats were the enemy. (laughs) And then I grew up and I I like cats and I changed my mind. But I love the idea of the superhero and I love superhero comic books and I love Superman and I love the Legion of Superheroes. And I read Asimov in the library and all I did was go to the library and read science fiction books. (laughs) And then then I wanted to be an English professor. But I couldn't be a stuffy English professor and study like Victorian poetry or poetry in general or medieval literature or sonnets, and I put them together and I said, well, there's a field called science fiction, and I'm going to be a feminist science fiction scholar. <laughs> and when I started in, in English professing, science fiction was seen as crap, and feminist science fiction was beyond the pale of crap. <laughs> so to put it mildly, this was not welcomed. But now that it's 2018, I feel really vindicated because Ursula Le Guin is venerated and Octavia Butler is venerated and people are seeing the the current feminist moment in terms of The Handmaid's Tale. And I was right. (laughs) You were right. (laughs) Feminist science fiction is fantastic. I mean, uh, science fiction to me is, it can be so broad. And uh, to me, it, it, kind of gets to the core of humanity and how we can move forward and how we can get along. And I think at its, you know, at, at its heart, there's this message of, of unity. Uh, so what, what is it that draws you to science fiction and particularly to feminist science fiction? What makes you so excited about it? Well, I like it that you, as a feminist, there was nowhere on earth that you could go to get out of patriarchy. Like if as mm. a Jew you could go to you could go to Israel. There's a place to go. But there was nowhere to go where women did everything and it's a thought experiment experiment and a power fantasy. So when I was a young assistant professor and the men were going feminist science fiction is crap. I was walking around with my pennant but I was really wielding it as a feminist saber sword above my head like as a Walter Mitty fantasy. And it, it, science fiction was seen as a power fantasy for young men, but it was a power fantasy for me. Wow. Because I knew that I knew that this literature was, was great, and it helped me think outside of the patriarchal box. I came late to writing fiction because people who generate scholarship really don't write fiction. And I saw that I had this funny, humorous New York voice, and I could just spit the humor out. It, it it just comes out of me, and I see things in an alternative way. Yeah. It's, it's, and it, in the Trump stories, I spent a year writing Trump stories, and I wrote 30-some-odd Trump stories, which is not easy. I mean, you have to really hate Trump to do that, <laughs> because a novel, um, a novel, it's one plot trajectory, and you just come 
do the beginning, the middle, and the end, but I had to sit and make 30 scenarios of what happens to the sky on different planets with feminist extraterrestrials, and it, I just couldn't stop. And then the book got filled up, and, I, and I'm still writing them, and I don't know if the editor wants to do a volume two. I don't know what to do with this stuff. It's becoming like the trouble with triples. They're <laughs> science fiction stories about Trump, and they're taking over my computer, so I think I have to stop. Wow. What, what preempted this in the first place? What made you decide to start writing short stories about Trump in particular? Well, I think I'm a little vengeful, and if I don't like somebody, I put them into my fiction, and I turn them into things. Or if something is going on in my life and it's a problem, I take it and I use humor to confront it. And that's what Jewish literature is. Like if, if Jews have surus, which means trouble, they laugh about it. That's Jewish culture. So I was just following my, my normal Jewish culture. Like my first novel was about what I had to do with my mother. And the second one was about finding a husband. And the, pro- the contemporary problem was Trump. And I, and I was so appalled by him that the writing just came out. <laughs> it's your way to sort of process trauma, I, I suppose. Yes. Again, that's Jewish culture. Jews tra- process trauma through humor. That's so interesting. I'm actually Jewish myself, uh, and I, I process my what? trauma by uh, creating art, by writing music, and I actually write science fiction-themed synth pop <laughs> to, to process how I feel about the world, so I think that that's fascinating. All right, so you're doing Jewish trauma, too. I am. We're all, doing, sure. Jewish, we're all <laughs> doing Jewish trauma. <laughs> yeah. So, so tell me a bit more about the, the short story collection. Uh, give us some highlights of what people can expect to uncover in these stories. Well, basically what I did was I took the truth and I exaggerated it. Yeah. Like whatever, whatever he was doing on the day that I was writing, I took it and I put aliens in it and I saw it in terms of fairy tales. And I had this protagonist that goes through my novels, Professor Sandra Lear, and Sandra Lear, if feminist extraterrestrials come to Earth, they go and find Sandra and they materialize in her office. And basically, Sandra is me, but like a super me, she does stuff that I can't do. And as as an aside, she's always in her 30s and she's thinner than I am now. (laughs) (laughs) And again, this is another fantasy. Like I I just invented this super feminist science fiction English professor who's really me. Yeah, because I because I was I was never trained to write fiction. I never went to like MA writers in writing programs, and it just comes out of me. And you're supposed to write what you know. So I'm writing myself. Yeah, awesome. And I have Sandra interact with Trump, and I live in the middle of Manhattan. And Sandra runs up Fifth Avenue and goes into Trump's. Up, um, goes into Trump Tower. I did a take on the Wizard of Oz with with her with her dog and a talking horse and her doorman. I just <laughs> took it all and changed it into. I just took it all and changed it into my world. Awesome. So, as a feminist in in our modern world, like you said, 2018 has been uh, a, a very big year as far as feminist issues are concerned, with the Me Too movement, and of course, with you know Trump being elected last year, it was kind of a a blow to feminists everywhere to say that it doesn't matter if this person is unqualified. It doesn't matter if this person, you know, has admitted to sexually harassing and worse to, to women. It does none of that matters. He's still going to get elected. How did that make you feel uh, personally? Well, I'm usually very verbose, but I could say in one word, horrible. <laughs> and that's why there's nothing else to say but horrible, yeah. like horrible beyond horrible. Like here you had Hillary, who was the most qualified person to ever be president, and that's not good enough. And during the debates when I saw him stalking her on the right. stage and standing behind her like the Incredible Hulk, like what is she supposed to do? She's damned if she doesn't, she's damned if she doesn't. She can't go up against him on national television because then she's seen as a shrew. It was an untenable situation, and I really related to this, Mm. because no matter what the woman did, it's still not good enough. And then you have, again, this horror, and 
how can you be president of the United States and use the word pussy? Who <laughs> says that? Yeah. Who says that? And I was in my freshman English class and I was discussing how words change. And I told them that the word pussy has changed. That, that before he said it, I would never in my life say pussy in a classroom. And I said, now, like I said to the class, you're going to do in-class writing next Monday. And I have to do something when you're writing to entertain myself. So I could bring in a ball of pink yarn and knitting needles, and I could sit here knitting when you're writing. And you could say, Dr. Barr, what are you doing? And I could say, I'm making a pussy hat. And we could have a whole conversation about the pussy hat I'm making. Who, how could this be? Yeah, yeah it's very upsetting. I, I personally, you know, share the belief that sexism is a is a huge part as to why Hillary was defeated. I mean, if not Russia collusion, sexism, there's a lot of stuff going on here. But I do think that the fact that just the fact that she is a woman, I mean, a lot of people refuse to vote for her. And I think that that is a massive, massive problem in our society. And anybody who isn't awake to that problem, I think their eyes need to be opened. I think so too. And even as a woman, I'm, a, let me say my exact, my, my generation here. I'm a baby boomer. So I'm not a young person, although I'm still young in spirit. And when I was a baby boomer trying to be an English professor, I had to, I had, to, as a young assistant professor, I had to do everything more than the men did. And the men still, the men were paid more than I was. Yeah. And I had it harder. I, I had to publish twice as much as they did. And I remember um, on, on the campus where I taught, the men had master's degrees and they were called doctor. And I was with this group of young women and we had PhDs and the students called us miss and the men without PhDs doctor. Hmm. And I remember there was, I called all these men the geezers and I'm probably as older than the geezers are now. But as a young woman, I stood in front of the, of the, building where I taught, and there was a geezer standing with a big poodle, and I said to my colleague, that dog is smarter than he is, and he gets called doctor, and we don't? <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you've run up against this sort of unfairness your whole life. Would you say that that's true? Yes. And how does that make you feel? Well, there's nothing that I could do about it, and I persevered, and I did the best that I could. It wasn't all sad. I won the Science Fiction Research Association Pilgrim Award for Lifetime Achievement in wow. Science Fiction Criticism, and that was an award won by Samuel Delaney, Ursula Le Guin, and Joanna Russ. Wow. And they're geniuses. They're geniuses, and I think of it that, well, I'm not a genius, but there are not enough geniuses to go around to win these things, and Everyone who gets the Academy Award is not Laurence Olivier. So, of course, I, am, I, am, I have much less achievement than these people do, but I'm honored that forever and ever my name will appear with theirs. So I did get recognition for what I did from my community, and that's the most important thing to me. What's involved in that so award? Not- uh, how were you chosen for that, and like, what sort of accomplishments are taken into consideration for that award? The Science Fiction Research Association is the scholarly group of professors who do science fiction. And there's a committee, and the committee decides who gets the Pilgrim Award. And it's the most exciting thing to people who do science fiction criticism. And we all know each other all over the world because there's, there's not a lot of us. Hmm. And it's, it's an annual award. And every year, everybody says, who is going to get the Pilgrim Award? It's like a really big deal. It's the, it's the, biggest, it's the biggest thing going in our field. Wow. And in, other, in, in future years, I was on the committee, and I served on it for three years, and then I was head of the committee. So not only did I get the Pilgrim Award myself, but I was able to pick three other pilgrims, and I love drama, and I called them up. I called them up on the phone and I told them that they got the Pilgrim Award and one of them was my former teacher. Wow. That's so cool. Um, so that's a highlight of, that's the highlight of my life. Wow. And if I'm ever down if I'm ever down or I ever feel upset, I go, Well, I won the Pilgrim Award and nobody <laughs> could ever take that away from me. Damn straight. That's amazing. Uh, so, Damn straight. <laughs> tell me a little bit about this 
this world of uh, of science fiction critique that you're a part of, what what sort of works do you look at, and how do you critique science fiction? It's basically very simple. That instead of being an English professor who does something normal like Shakespeare or Milton or Dryden, I would look at science fiction authors and I critique their work from a feminist standpoint. Mm, awesome. And there's a, um, there's a journal called PMLA, Publication of the Modern Language Association, and I, with a co-editor, did the first science fiction issue of PMLA. And PMLA is the most, the most impressive academic journal in the country, and I was able to do the first science fiction issue, but I was afraid to do it by myself, and I called in a colleague to do it, like because it was just too scary to do it alone. But I did it in my own voice, and in the introduction, I talked about a feminist giant talking squid. And on the cover, I designed the cover, and I had um, the, the planet Mars from one of the one of the NASA space probes that went out and photographed it, and I put on it an alien with a zapped gun. And putting, I, I don't have the words to express how different that was, because putting an alien with a zapped gun on the cover of PMLA would be analogous to the president giving the State of the Union address in a bathing suit, and even... <laughs> <laughs> and even Trump did not do that. Yet. <laughs> There's still time. <laughs> I hope he doesn't listen to this and get any ideas. <laughs> I'm sure he won't. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can't be that sure. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, President Trump, if you're listening, do not wear a bathing suit President to the State Trump, of the Union. If you're listening, President Trump, if you're listening, I have the same accent that you do. <laughs> What would you say to President Trump if you had the opportunity? I have to pause because I think I would start screaming at him. <laughs> I, would, <laughs> I think I would say every, I'm not going to say the words, but I think I would say every curse word that would come out of my mouth at the top of my lungs because he's really hurting people and this is my country. Like, I was a Fulbright scholar, and I lived abroad in Germany and Austria for, for five years, and I went and I taught in South Africa, and I went and availed myself of every travel opportunity to me. But I, I love it here. This is my country, and when, when, I, fly, when I flew home and you're and you come over the ocean and you and you see the beach and and I go this is my home this is where I'm from I would I would not go live forever in a foreign country no matter how much money anyone gave me and that the fact that the president of the United States is a disgrace uh, not only a disgrace but a lying disgrace is too much for me to take yeah I think you speak for a lot of us when you when you speak that way. I mean, I feel the same way. I, I use I my pride in, in in being an American has been severely diminished to the point where, you know, I question everything around me about whether or not this country is good. You know, whether this country is a force for good. I used to think of America. I'm a big Star Trek nerd. I used to think of America kind of like you know, projected in the future, I would always hope America would lead the way into some sort of, you know, uh, like beautiful, wonderful future where people are treated fairly and everyone has an opportunity and everyone has the same opportunity to to grow and to live and to be happy because that's kind of what the founding fathers intended. But I think Trump being elected has really uncovered the fact that that's only true for a certain amount of people. You know, it seems to be true for white men and and I'm a white man so I never really I mean even though I'm I'm Jewish I still look like a white man and I can I have that yeah. privilege and I I think it was really eye opening for me to realize how many people don't have that privilege like I didn't even know what that privilege was I didn't know that it was something that was afforded to me or something that was different than what other people had uh but Seeing seeing that Trump was elected and seeing the way that he has started curtailing people's rights and people there there's a portion of our country that champions that uh, it just feels so disgusting and it it makes me uh, embarrassed you know just really embarrassed to be an American. 
that's what I feel too. And actually, my country is New York hmm. because I taught in the South. And I really didn't belong there, and I was more comfortable in Germany than I was teaching in the South. And the fact that a New Yorker who comes from Queens, who went to school where I grew up, that someone who who emanates from my place of being can be this horrible. You're supposed to be proud when the when the president comes from from your from your town. <laughs> and I'm not proud. I'm sickened. Yeah. And I would expect a New Yorker, and especially one from Queens, to do better. Yeah. But, I, you know, it's interesting <laughs> you say that New York was your country, because I, I live in Seattle, and I've been here for uh, close to seven years. And I now feel like Seattle is kind of my country. Like, my, my American pride I now hold in Seattle, because, uh, you know, when net neutrality was repealed, Washington State was one of the first states to say, no, we're not going to abide by this. And... Uh, Seattle has a lot of amazing programs for people in need, and Seattle seems to be really trying. Washington State and Seattle, in particular, seem to be really trying to to make things better. Uh, it's definitely not perfect, and it's not fair, but it's trying to be better. And it, in one hand, I mean, we live in this country where that is possible, and that does give me hope that uh, that even if the people at the top are not speaking for the people at the bottom, at least that someone is, you know. Right, and Trump grew up in in diversity. Queens is the, is one of the most diverse places on the earth. He grew up in Jamaica Estates. It's a place filled with Jews. And when he grew up, he grew up with refugee Jews. That, um, I'm younger than Trump, but I'm of his generation. And and he lied about being German. He said that he was Swedish. And his mother is in, is a poor immigrant who worked as a maid. So how can he deny poor immigrants the right to come here and better themselves if that is exactly what his mother did? Yeah. It's so disingenuous. Yeah, it's disgusting. <laughs> and that's why he has all this highfalutin nonsense with the gold and the opulence. That comes from his mother, that she was, she was desperately poor. Well, something that I love about science fiction is its ability to bring hope and its ability to allow someone to see outside perspectives and to experience something through someone else's eyes. I mean, for me, it's much more effective to look at humanity through the lens of science fiction than through almost any other uh, genre as far as teaching me something about who I am and who people are. How do you feel about that? I I agree, and that's that's called cognitive estrangement. That you you see the world from a different perspective than what you're used to, and you could create the world in any way that you want. It's the most liberating form of literature, and that's why I was drawn to it. I knew I would have had an easier life if I were a Shakespeare scholar, but you have to do what you like, and and I couldn't spend my whole life doing it, and I just damned the torpedoes, and I did what my calling was. Awesome. What I, besides Mighty Mouse, what uh, science fiction inspired you? I, I mean, my, Mighty Mouse, I guess, is a superhero uh, story, but but I, there's a lot of crossover between science fiction and superhero stories, like you know, Superman, as you mentioned, uh, liking Superman before. Superman is an alien. It's something a lot of people don't think about. There's brilliant science fiction inside of the Superman story as far as being well, a, an outsider. Well, not only is he is he an alien, but he's created by by Jews, by Jewish men, because Jewish men were not seen as supermen. Hmm. Jewish Jewish men Jewish men were not astronauts. I could only think of one Jewish baseball player, Sandy Koufax, like hmm. the whole Jewish mother thing. So it was a power fantasy for Jewish men, and Jewish men it invented the. Black Panther character, which is so popular at this very moment. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Yes. Wow. I'm, what? Sure, I, I'm sure of that. Because, um, because, because the, I, I forget what Jewish man invented the Black Panther, and I don't want to say something that's incorrect, but I, there was an article in the New York Times magazine last week, and it said that he invented the Black Panther because he wanted to give black people someone to look up to. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, it looks like, I just looked it up, Black Panther was created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. 
the guys who created okay, pretty much Stan. everything for Marvel Comics. Is Stanley yeah. Jewish? Yes. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. And I think I'm right. I think he's from Forest Hills. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, so much of and our... He, Hugo, Stan Lee created Hugo, so much of our popular mythos. It's amazing. Yes. And Hugo Gernsback lived in Forest Hills, and Spider-Man supposedly lives there, too. So Forest Hills is a bastion of science fiction. <laughs> That's super cool. What about Star Trek and Star Wars? What, what, what of the big popular uh, science fiction media do you personally um, well, connect to? Well, since I said that I was a baby boomer, Star Trek was enforced when I was a kid, and I loved it. Yeah, I, I, I loved, I loved the, the da 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 da, da <laughs> and the ship boldly and the ship boldly going, and Captain Kirk, and the kiss with Lieutenant Uhura, and the planets, and the makeup, and the Klingons. I loved that, yeah. and I also loved, I also loved Star Wars. How do you feel about the new, the newer incarnations of Star Trek? Did you watch The Next Generation or anything that came after? Um, I, I like The Next Generation, and I liked Captain Picard because Captain Picard was not a He-Man captain. And I, I liked his, his Frenchness, and I ended up being married to a French-Canadian, <laughs> which to a New York Jew from Forest Hills is being married to an alien, but that's okay. <laughs> so I sort of I sort of married Captain Picard. Oh, lucky. <laughs> yes. I think you just made a lot of people that listen to this podcast very jealous. I think we all want to marry Captain Picard. <laughs> I I did, but Captain Picard is not Jewish, but that's all right. I got married at 46 and my Jewish mother from Forest Hills was so happy that she didn't care what I married as long as it was a human. And with me, she I guess she felt she never could tell, but yeah. I, and I went around <laughs> I went around telling the entire science fiction um, research association, I'm finally married, I married an alien, and they kind of believed it, and they wanted to see what this person looked like, but he looks like a normal person. Well, you know, a lot of aliens in Star Trek do look like humans, so I think that you're still, you're still good. <laughs> I mean, budget <laughs> constraints. <laughs> so I have a very broad question for you that might be a little difficult to answer, but uh, there's, a lot of, there's, there's a lot of baggage that the term feminism carries. Uh, feminism means something different to a lot of different people. And, you know, I consider myself a feminist, and I've talked about that on the podcast several times in the past, but I've never gotten the chance to talk to a feminist scholar before. So my question for you is, how do you define feminism? And I know that's kind of a, a broad question, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Like, what is feminism that's, to you? That's, that's, that's a very easy question. Feminism to me means that women have the right to live full human lives in a manner that is not in any way subaltern to men. Awesome. That if, if men can do something, women should be able to do the thing too. Yeah. Yeah, I, I heard a definition once that I really liked that was uh, feminism is the idea that, that all people are actually equal and and are not treated as such and need to be treated as such and feminism is yes. is the the path for women to to champion that cause uh but that being feminist means that you believe that you truly believe that all people are equal so it it's kind of like the idea that black lives matter uh is is sort of like a, a version of that for people of color to say uh, or african-american people to say like we are equal and you you aren't treating us that way, so we have to tell you to treat us that way. I feel like feminism is like that, and that all of these causes uh, aren't are not just about uh, like feminism to me is not just about women; it's about equality across the board. That all people needed to be treated I, equally. I totally agree with you because we have a lot of problems, and we need every person's talent to try to solve the problems that we have. And you can't take big chunks of the of the population and subordinate them because of their gender or their color. Yeah. This is ridiculous. Absolutely. Like if the person who's going to cure cancer is a black woman who's half Eskimo, you shouldn't, you shouldn't retard her from doing that because of what she is. But when you see the world from a feminist science fiction perspective, and you have cognitive estrangement from it, things that look normal to other people look very strange to you. Mm -hmm. For example, I've been watching the Olympics all week, and I've been watching the, the, the women ice skaters, and they're called ladies. Hmm. 
And I recall, I, this is very hard to do, these triple toe, double axle, whatever they do. It's, 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 a, it's, it's an amazing talent. This is not ladylike. And it looks very strange to me that the women ice skaters have to wear these stupid, sexist, feminine costumes with their bodies sticking out and the little, the little skirts. Mm-hmm. And I was complaining to my husband, why do they have to wear these little skirts? And why, when the men pick them up, do you, does the camera zero in on their crotch? <laughs> and why do we have to have this? And he said, that's the way it is. You're never going to change it. But from my mind, either have the men with their bodies out and having them wear ridiculous costumes with skirts, or have the women wear full-body leotards like the men do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, Why do we have to have femininity on the ice? It's a sport. It's a talent. It's hard. It takes muscle. It takes work. It takes dedication. What's with the skirts? <laughs> How, what's with the legs sticking out? What, what's yeah, I with agree the crotches? with you. I agree with you. That's something that bothers me a lot in uh, in a lot of science fiction, including you know Star Trek, which is one of my favorites. Uh, examples of women being put in costumes that are extremely revealing when the men are not. I feel like. Uh, if you're going to objectify objectify people, you should either do it equally or not at all. You should objectify men and women if you need to objectify for a story to tell a story. Uh, otherwise, don't. <laughs> you know, I feel like, like, like so in, much. On, oh, sorry. Go ahead. On, no, but on the Starship Enterprise, Lieutenant Nohura was not wearing pants. Right. Put her in pants like all the other people on the bridge. Right. Why do you have to have your legs sticking out because you're female? It's ridiculous. Right. And I, the next generation in the first season, you saw some men in very short skirts called the scant, which I thought was such a nice touch. And I read something from Gene Roddenberry where he said that in the future, fashion was going to be more fluid. And sometimes men would wear short skirts because they liked it. Uh, and that's how they wanted to right. present themselves. And I think that makes it m- much more... Uh, palatable to see women wearing very short skirts also because that's a choice that they're making. It's not uh, it, it's a choice that the character is making. It's not necessarily uh, women being forced into a male idea of what they should look like. Of course that happens all the time in Star right. Trek but I felt like you know at least they were trying. <laughs> and to wear heels and to work in heels heels are horrible. It, it, it's very it's, who needs this? Yeah, and to, and feminist science fiction takes me. It gives me an escape from that. Hmm. Are there any like in um, Joanna Russ? Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. In Joanna Russ's in Joanna Russ's when it changed before the men come, there aren't men around that you have to dress for the for the male gaze. Right, and I think a lot of people don't realize what a problem that is and how pervasive that is. I've been reading a lot of comic books recently because I just discovered that. Uh, my friend Jane just clued me into the fact that the the library three blocks away has a ton of comic books. So I've been checking out a bunch and I've read some really great stuff. Uh, but what's what I keep coming into over and over again is that women are drawn uh, incredibly sexually. Uh, and it's it's so obvious when it's a man drawing the comics. And I mean, a comic book industry is is very male dominated. And so many of the characters are drawn as if they were like actually having sex <laughs> But then they, but then they just put like a different color on their skin. Like the skin, the clothes they're wearing are so skin tight, you can see every little detail. But then they color it so it's supposed to be tights instead of just, you know, legs. And the men are not drawn that way at all. And it's driving me absolutely crazy. It's really pulling me out of the story because it looks so stupid when you've, when you've learned to see what is happening. It looks to me like I'm watching a man jerk off as he's drawing i'm like i'm not watching something that's created with any sort of female voice in mind and it really bothers me now and i never used to see it before but now i'm seeing it everywhere well that's what cognitive estrangement is that sexism appears to be normal and if you if feminist science fiction gives us cognitive estrangement from patriarchy you get to see that all of these things are not normal totally absolutely it's, it's easy it's easy to change, and and this, the things that came out with the sexual harassment—that's that's beyond. Right. How do you feel about the Me Too movement? I mean, I feel like it's uh, it's been all over the media, and now we're dealing with this backlash where men are saying it's a witch hunt. Um, but 
I don't know. I'd like to hear your take on this whole situation. I think that it's a needed thing because like Cassandra, women were not believed when they said that this happened to them. And it started with the most rich and powerful women in the society, the actresses, and they came out and said what Harvey Weinstein did to them. And so many of them said it, that they that they were believed in, and Harvey Weinstein was toppled and he looks to me like a like a big fat rapist monster right. and how dare he do that but think about the women you know who are working as waitresses and they have to have that job to feed their kids and they have to deal with this how dare men think that that they can go and do this to women totally. and then the women are blamed when it happens to them absolutely like you have to have you have to have make a living yeah you, you have to you have to go out and work and male privilege has to be chopped down so that they don't do this to women and keep women from having the careers that they want. Absolutely. I I think that uh, a lot of men don't realize the fear that women are walking around with all the time of just being, of being harassed or attacked or, Harassed, like the fear of the fear of being raped. Yeah. Like I, one year, I was working at a school in Florida, and I lived in an apartment complex. And the, you took your garbage out in the dumpster in the back of the apartment, and I wouldn't take my garbage out at night. Right. I've had several female friends that were that were raped and were and didn't report it because they were because they knew that the system was not going to help them, and it was going to be more painful to report it than to not. So for me, I feel like right. the, the Me Too movement is incredible. And I mean, I, I think it's been a moment for, for men, myself included, to check our behavior and to say, am I participating in anything that, that is remotely like this at all? Because there's, there's this pervasive culture of, of harassment. And I, I've thought back to experiences that I've had where I was in a workplace where a woman, who, a very attractive woman who worked there was being harassed constantly and I didn't do anything about it. And I may have even participated in it because it was just the, I mean, she was participating in it because it was too, like, because she didn't have any power in that situation and couldn't make it stop. And she said things to me, you know, privately that, so I knew that she was uncomfortable and I was, it was a shock to me that she was uncomfortable because it all seems like fun and games when people are joking around. But, um, but a lot of men just don't understand that like women are doing that against their better ju- well not against their better judgment but against their their desire to do so because their better judgment is telling them that they need to have this job and they need to fit in and and this is just the way they it is and it's never going to change and but we have to change it i mean we can change it fit in was the word that that came to my mind and when trump said pussy um, on the bus to Billy Bush, Billy Bush got in trouble because he went along with it and he laughed. And all he had to do was would be to say, what you're saying is totally inappropriate. That's all he had to do. But he was trying to be a good old boy and just laugh along with the, with the, with the older sexist. Right. Yeah. And Trump used the, diffuse, the defense that- of locker room talk. And I mean, I... I remember being in middle school and being in locker rooms, and I understand what locker room talk means, but it terrified me then, and it terrifies me now, and I feel like uh, whenever I found myself stuck in a situation where that's how uh, the the men or the boys around me when I was younger are talking, like I always felt mortified by it and felt like it was disgusting, and I don't think that that should be a fair excuse to to say whatever you want to say. I feel like you know, the idea that, that there's a certain way you can talk around men and a certain way you can talk around women. I feel like we're just humans and we should show each other respect uh, or right. not. You know, we, it's just humans. We should treat each other the same. And if you're the type of person who doesn't show respect to people, there should be consequences for that. Uh, I don't know. I'm getting, I'm getting frustrated. <laughs> right. Well, like women have to live, women have to live their whole life that way. Go to work dressed in heels, dressed in pearls, dressed in a tight skirt. Like it's like, how much femininity are you going to put on today? And if you don't put on the femininity, you you get punished. Like yeah. when I had job interviews at the Modern Language Association, I was smart. I knew how to have the interview, but I remember I didn't know how long my skirt should be. And I was with my female friends, and I said, "Is this length all right?" And they said, "No, this is too long." And I'm a good sewer, and I went back and I sewed it up um, higher. And they said, "No, that's too short." It was like 
being in a fairy tale. This is too much. This is not enough. <laughs> and okay, this length is this length is just right. And there was someone um, about five years younger than me, and she came to MLA with me to help me. And she she carried my shoes because in the interview I had to go in with heels. Today she's a provost. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I can only imagine. I mean, I've I've had uh, I I feel like the the patriarchy and sexism, of course, also affects men, and there is this idea that men need to be uh, strong and all the time, and men need to be, you know, protecting women all the time because that's how men are supposed to be. And I feel like all of that stuff is just as damaging uh, to women and to men. And I mean, all of these ideas of gender norms, I think, have put put us as a culture into boxes that we cannot get out of without conscious effort. And I think it's time to make that conscious effort to get out. I totally agree. And I, I, you know, I've, I really enjoy playing. I, I'm a musician. I play in uh, rock bands where I dress flamboyantly and uh, you know, I, I love the idea of letting go of what I was told I was supposed to be and just find out who I am and be myself. And I love being in Seattle because it's a place where I feel like I am afforded the the freedom to do that. And I I want for our entire country to be that way. Uh, so for me, I feel like science fiction uh, and, and what you've been talking about with that, uh, do you say cognitive disassociation? Is that correct? Um, cognitive estrangement. Estrangement. Thank you. Yeah. Cognitive estrangement. Uh, getting some sense of distance from the way things are done and seeing how things could be. I, I'm such a firm believer that science fiction is a beautiful and healthy way to do that. And that's a huge part of why I started this podcast was just to talk about the future and to talk about change and to talk about um, alternative, positive ways of being. And it feels, uh, I just, the, the way that things are going just makes me feel so often like we're just heading in the wrong direction. So I, how do you feel about that? And what do you do to keep yourself focused on the positive and to move forward in a positive direction? Well, what I do is I write more stories and I write more literature and I do more academic work. Mm. I think I'm an academic workaholic and I've done this all my life and even though I don't need to do it anymore and I've done enough, I can't stop doing it because I feel that writing is a form of resistance and I live in a country where, all right, there are problems, but I still can write what I want and I could go on a podcast and, and say that I don't like Trump. I love it. I love it. I feel so similarly. I love that you said writing is a form of resistance. Uh, I feel exactly the same way about podcasting and just about creating art in general. Um, I feel like anything that you put out there with a message of unity at this point is resistance. And it feels insane that that's the truth. But uh, but there's so many people that are so full of hate and they're, they're unfortunately in a position to make policy changes. Uh, people who are afraid of other people because of the way that they look or... or uh, or where they come from, and policy changes are being made because of that. So just being, uh, just being someone who accepts everyone, or or tries their hardest to accept everyone, or shows a way that people can be accepted, that is a form of resistance. And creating art, and and writing, and you know, scholarly works, all of that can be a very powerful way to make change. I I love the the way that you phrase that. I agree. And I, I start When Trump Changed with a quote from Mel Brooks. And I am the generation that would be the daughter of Mel Brooks. And Mel Brooks liberated a concentration camp. And really? he Yes. He was a, um, a soldier in World War II. He liberated a concentration camp. And he said that he wanted to make Hitler look ridiculous. <laughs> and... And his his power over Hitler was making Hitler look ridiculous. That was his revenge for walking wow. into a concentration camp. And Amazing. I went to a concentra I went to a concentration camp during my Fulbright year in Germany about six years ago, and it was horrible walking in six years ago. And I could not imagine liberating a concentration camp in the 1940s. And of course, Trump is not Hitler. Absolutely, positively not. But I'm purposely writing in the tradition of Mel Brooks ridiculing the leader because Trump hates to be laughed at. Mm -hmm. And modesty aside, I have a talent. I can spit out humor like 
talking. It's easy for me to do. And what I'm doing in the book, I'm not trying to change the minds of the 30% of the people who like him. You, you can't change minds. Like in freshman English, if I have a student who doesn't want to learn, I concentrate on the students who do want to learn. But what I'm trying to do is to ridicule, is to ridicule Trump. And in so doing, you maybe take a little of his power away. Yes, because if that's, that's what Mel Brooks did to Hitler. Again, I am not Mel Brooks. I do not have that talent. And again, Trump is not Hitler. But with the talent that I do have, I'm trying to use that New York Jewish outer borough tradition voice in a female form to, to ridicule this person. I love it. <laughs> I'd never heard that and, about Mel Brooks before. That's really fascinating. And I'm yes, that's. The, I've never seen the producers, but I know that there's a, a a musical inside of the play called Springtime for Hitler, and I'm guessing that that's what you're referring to with Mel Brooks. Yes, mocking yes, Hitler. It is, and and again, like I lived in Germany for for several years. Some of my best friends are Germans. I went there alone. The the. the the, the generations after World War II, the my age ones, the ones that come after, they didn't do anything. I'm friends with these people. But when in springtime for Hitler, when Mel Brooks has the, the chorus girls with the pretzels on their heads and, the, and, and, and Hitler saying, I'm the German Ethel Merman, this is hysterical to me. I've seen it 30 times and I, and I keep laughing at it. <laughs> Yeah, I you know I look at things like Star Wars. Like uh, when the Force Awakens came out, you had a female protagonist and a, a black male protagonist, and I loved I I love simple things like that where you turn people into heroes that are not normally shown that way because I think there's a huge amount of power in that. Uh, I think it takes a huge yeah. amount of power away from the idea that you have to be a white male to be a hero because that's all that we've really seen and I think that that has sort of seeped its way into the collective consciousness of our culture. So I think that the 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 new trend of diversity in casting, you mentioned Black Panther, I think that's a huge, huge example of this in action where you don't necessarily need to preach at people and tell them what to believe, but you can show them other things. You can show them things like other other options of being you can show them uh other types of heroes and it will seep into their subconscious and and tell them you know this could be you like if you're if you're a young jewish kid and you see a jewish hero uh like mel brooks is a jewish hero and you can say man maybe yes. i can do something uh good for my community like he did and i think that that's the, what i'm yeah absolutely that's what i'm trying to do absolutely. with the talent that i have and even though it's not as big as his talent, all right, this is what I have. I'm trying my best with it. Yeah, I think that's I think that's wonderful. I think the more the more voices of unity that we can have, and the stronger and the louder that they are put out there, uh, the better of a chance we have at bringing our country back together, and hopefully someday bringing the world together. Because I, I believe that if we're going to survive, we need to come together as one people. Like you know, we are one like the human race is one people. I, that's the future that I just really, really want and believe can happen. This idea that, that maybe we could all consider ourselves, you know, one race, the human race, like people talk about race and race relations. But in my mind, you know, I heard someone say this, but maybe a decade ago for the first time, like we are the human race. Uh, we are not a bunch of different races. We are the human race. We are all one people. I'd love for us to, to get there somehow. All humans come from Africa. Right. And actually, I always thought that there's no such thing as black people and white people. All people are brown, and either you're darker brown or you're, or you're tan. <laughs> like, I'm, a, I'm seen as a Caucasian person, and right now it, it's, um, it's dark here, but if I take my, my hand and I put it against the white paper where I have my notes on, my hand is not white, my hand is tan, my hand is mm. light brown. Hmm. I love that. I've never heard that or thought about that before. But I, I literally just held my hand up to a piece of white paper where I'm sitting. And I agree with you. I, I, I love that. I think that's a really great sentiment. Yeah, I mean, I, it's true. I feel like Star Trek, for me, Star Trek has been the biggest force for allowing me to open my eyes to that type of thinking. And uh, I, I love that you're putting that type of thing out there. I'm, you know, I love that you're 
using writing as resistance, I think it's wonderful. And I'm thrilled to be able to uh, to amplify your voice through this podcast and get your Thank ideas you. out there more. I think that's thrilling for me, and I, it's a wonderful opportunity. I really, really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Like, I reached out to you. I don't know you. And I said, well, how do I get my voice out there? And I said, podcasts, okay? Science fiction podcasts. And I said, well, maybe someone will ex- will accept me. But if you don't step forward and you don't try you don't, and you don't ask, then you don't get to do it. And the worst thing that could happen is so, you know, the person rejects you. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> you, totally. you, 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 just, you just go and try. Yeah, you know, I, I get requests very... Uh, infrequently, but I get a few um, here and there of people wanting to come on the show and talk about something. And I've only said yes to uh, like two or three of them ever. Uh, And I got your email and I was just 100% on board the moment I saw it because I was just so excited to uh, just to talk about science fiction feminism. I mean, those are those are two things that are on my mind all day, every day. And I'm just getting to talk to someone who is a scholar in that field is, is a thrill for me. Well, that makes me feel happy because when I was a young person, as I said, this wasn't welcome, and this is the future. And I'm and I'm talking to you, who is younger than I am, and, and you just said what you just said, and that made it worth it. That's fantastic. Because it was not easy. <laughs> it was not. It, it was not easy. And if I was a Dryden, Shakespeare, Milton scholar, there wouldn't be this excitement in what I did. Yeah. I mean, sci-fi is, is my genre. I mean, I, 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 I love fantasy. I love fiction of, of many different kinds, but, but science fiction touches something deep inside of me and always has. And uh, this sense of wonder at the universe and appreciation for what we have and a sense of hope, um, all of those feelings that, that I want to feel are amplified through science fiction. And uh, I don't know, I just want to share that with everybody. I want everyone to to, to read a good science fiction or watch a great sci-fi movie and feel just for a second that sense of hope that maybe things are going to be better in the future. That's what I feel. And science fiction is a community. Yeah. Like, uh, being the first woman to call science fiction as my, as my field, I have to say that the science fiction men were wonderful to me. Really? Wonderful. That's fantastic. Wonderful. I'm so um, glad to hear and, that. And they, they became... They became, they became my family because I'm an only child, and I and there were all these men, and some of them were like fathers, and some of them were like brothers, and 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 I used to be young, and and they took me under their wing, and and they and they championed me because I was a woman of their tribe, and and they 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 were very very good to me. That you know that reinforces something that I used to talk about on this podcast years ago, uh, the idea that exposing yourself to a lot of science fiction might make you a more empathetic person uh, and more open-minded person. And, you know, I've had so many bad experiences on the sci-fi Reddit since then that I stopped believing that as strongly. So it's really wonderful to hear that 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 was your experience. That really makes me happy. Yes, they they welcomed me. They listened to me. They published me. Um, (laughs) This has been going on this has been going on for my entire life. These people, the science fiction community of scholars, is my family. Yeah, and it's very exciting to me that I've recently branched out into fiction because people who do scholarship don't do fiction because it's two different talents, mm-hmm. and it's like speaking two—it's like it's like speaking two languages, and I can be bilingual. In, yeah, in, in, am I doing science fiction? criticism and do I have to say cognitive estrangement or am I doing science fiction fiction and can I yell out pussy grabber (laughs) (laughs) there's a big difference between cognitive estrangement and the male gaze and pussy grabber and I like my subtitle because it's so non-academic I love the subtitle it definitely gives gives me a taste of what's coming (laughs) well speaking of that you offered to share one of your short stories with, with the podcast and I would love to hear it I would um, I would love to. This is a short, short story, and it's called Two Trump Heads Are Better Than One. And it's an example of how I take the reality of what happened to me and extrapolate and turn it into a commentary about Trump that ridicules him. And it's about how I went to the dentist and had my tooth extracted, and they put 
bone in my jaw, and it came from cadavers. And I am, and this was absolutely true. I did have my tooth extracted. The surgeon did tell me that, and I just imagined that the bone from the cadavers that they put into my jawbone grew into a, a trump head on my shoulder. <laughs> so I'll read you. I'll read you the story. Two Trump heads are better than one, and it has Sandra in it. Awesome. Here it comes. Two Trump heads are better than one. Professor Sandra Lear, a feminist science fiction scholar who teaches at the Metropolitan University of New York, could not ignore the persistent pain in her molar. Thus it came to pass that she found herself sitting in an oral surgeon's chair about to have her tooth extracted. Do you want me to put growth material in your gum to facilitate implant insertion? Asked Dr. Doogie Horowitz. <laughs> Sandra, who was scared as hell that she was about to be decapitated, nodded her head affirmatively. When she returned for her post-operative checkup, she asked for details about what had been inserted in her mouth. Bone, said Dr. Horowitz. What kind of bone? Bone from a cadaver. What if the cadaver wasn't Jewish? I might have boyish <laughs> bone cells reproducing in my jaw. <laughs> Sandra went home and fell asleep. Upon awakening, she felt a weird sensation on her shoulder. She looked into a mirror and saw a second head attached to her body. The head did not look like a normal head. It had a small pursed mouth, steely eyes framed by white makeup, and a very strange orange haircut. Yes, Trump's talking head was pervasive in the all-Trump, all-the-time media circus. But having Trump's head attached to her body right next to her own head was the limit. Sandra immediately phoned the surgeon. I have an emergency. The cells grew into Trump's head, not new jawbone. <laughs> Oops, said Dr. Horowitz. The cells I used came from Trump's deceased parents who were buried locally in New Hyde Park. Instead of simply generating new jawbone cells, these cells grew into a completely formed Trump head. Will I gain weight? Trump is not thin, and he eats, I can barely say it, fried taco shells. And if he has access to my hands, does that mean that he can grope my pussy? <laughs> the Trump head has no control over your body. How do I get my normal Trump headless body back? I need some time to research this unprecedented question. <laughs> Sandra decided to get a heads up on the situation by seeking an audience with Trump himself in Trump Tower. She put on a burger to disguise the Trump head. Politically correct New Yorkers, loath to stare at a burger-clad woman, would not notice the covered shoulder protrusion. <laughs> Sandra entered Trump Tower and asked to speak to Trump. Fearing that a woman wearing a burqa had to be a terrorist, secret service agents swarmed around her. Frantically frisking her in search of a gun or a bomb, they instead closely encountered Trump's head. I'm not a terrorist, Sandra insisted. I obviously have a huge problem. Trump has a swelled head. Maybe he has a suggestion. The agents escorted Sandra to Trump's apartment. He became enraged when he saw his head attached to Sandra. Get me a guillotine, screamed Trump. Two Trump heads are definitely not better than one. Sir, presidents are not allowed to behead people, said a Secret <laughs> Service agent. Trump began to tweet. Dr. Sandra Lear doesn't know how to use my head. Not. He then continued to shout, I'll use the nuclear codes to explode the hell out of the imposter Trump head. Sir, implored the agent, it is not advisable to deploy nuclear weapons simply because the second Trump head hurts your ego. Can't we blame the Mexicans? Initiate a travel ban to protect, prevent any other Trump head from entering the country? Trump's alternative head, 
suddenly exploded. <laughs> Dr. Horowitz closed the hole in Sandra's shoulder. She recovered completely and survived four years of President Pence. <laughs> Although she did not agree with Pence, she was grateful that he was not sick in his head. <laughs> the end. Wow. Thank you so much. That was fantastic. I love Doogie Horowitz. <laughs> that detail really stuck out to me. The doctor was like 25 years old yeah. and he was going into my mouth, taking my tooth out. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, Marlene, this has been a real, a real pleasure for me. Such a delight to chat with you. It was a pleasure for me, too. I thoroughly enjoyed myself. So where can people go to find your short story collection? It's it's forthcoming, and it will be out on April 1st, and they can get it at the B-Cubed Press website, and when it comes out, they can get it on Amazon. Awesome. And do you have any, uh, any social media or anything like that you'd like to plug? Um, I'm on Facebook, and I'm on Twitter. Awesome. What's your Twitter handle? At Marlene Barr. Perfect. Well, this was... So much fun. Uh, it's great to chat with another sci-fi lover. <laughs> uh, I, I really, really appreciate you coming on the show. I really appreciate you reaching out. And it was such a wonderful opportunity to get to chat with you. Thank you. And thank you for giving me a forum to express my ideas and have writer's resistance. Thank you. <laughs> my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Next week, we'll begin our journey through Firefly, one of my all-time favorite shows. My good friend Jane Smith is going to be coming by to discuss every single episode of the series with me, one at a time, and I will be bringing those to you on the podcast. I'm really, really excited about this, and I hope you are too. You can check out my sci-fi synth-pop music, my podcast library, my music videos, and more at my website, jessemercury.com. That's going to do it for this week. I really appreciate you listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, stay nerdy out there. Oh,